This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3? And while you're doing that, um, it was 2015-ish when I stepped off of a taxi cab in Paris, France. Now, that sounds very uh, like a a humble brag when you think about it, but it was not. Uh, I was on a layover on my way back from West Africa. I had been traveling for at least 24 hours at that point. I was tired. I was alone, and I just wanted to go home. But I had a seven-hour layover, uh, and so I got in a cab, and by the time I get back, um, you can imagine my disappointment when I saw the cab pulling away and had the shocking revelation that my uh, iPhone was on the back seat of that cab as it pulled away in Paris, France. Yeah, take a moment. (laughs) And I discovered it by uh, doing the iPhone Macarena. Do you know about the iPhone Macarena? Are you familiar with this? You get out and you do the tap. Oh no, it's not there. And then you do this tap, right? It's not there, right? You see where I'm going? And I, oh, it's my shirt pocket. It's here, but it's not here. You know, right cheek, left cheek. Oh, where's my iPhone? <laughs> it's the iPhone Macarena. So, um, so I'm doing the iPhone Macarena in front of the Charles de Gaulle uh, International Airport in Paris, uh, and my phone is gone, and my heart was sunk because on that phone, I mean, in addition to, I mean, you know how this is, you know, Rhonda, when you've been someplace like this, this is my connection to the work that we just did. We have been building schools, like all the information, all the baptisms and stuff that have been happening. Like we had, we baptized, I mean, I borderline got a urinary tract infection in that water. That's actually probably TMI, but it's true. Uh, Sorry. Um, Can we edit that out? (laughs) It was true, but we baptized a lot of people in there. uh, And I just didn't have any, uh, it was all there. But even more than that, Like, I travel a lot, and this is like my connection to my family back home. My wife will tell you, I wear her out when I'm on the road. I'm texting her, I'm on this flight about to take off, I just landed, taken off. By the way, she goes, uh, I hear from her every other day or so. I mean, she's gone, she needs a vacation for me. But I'm, uh, I'm literally connected to her, but I've left it, I've misplaced my connection to my family, connection that when I'm apart from them that gets me to them. And this passage in Romans, as we get into chapter three, is this reminder that that connection that we have to God is not through our works, but through grace. Like I had misplaced my phone and Paul's warning here in Romans three, as it unfolds, is don't misplace the grace. That's how you're going to be able to connect with each other. That's how you're going to retain communication with the Father. He shows us in Romans 1 exactly, uh, you can try it on your own, do your own laws and your own thing, and it doesn't work. In Romans 2, he shows us, and you can do your own, you can do as good as you want. You can be hugely good and nice and kind, and it still doesn't work because it's only through, and that's the passage that we're getting here, it is only through Grace, right? Through faith, through grace, through the atoning blood of Christ. And that's what I want to read to you. And if you're watching online, I hope you've got your Bibles out as well. 
whether you are in your living room or in a hotel or all you beach people, I see you. Somewhat jealous, hoping it's raining a little bit, if I'm being honest. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's terrible. That's not a good place in my heart. We're happy for you that if you're at the beach, but we're just grateful that anyone is watching online. If you've got prayer requests, pop those in the comments. Know that we have people here that love you and we'll be praying for you. And in verse uh, 22, so Romans 3, I'm just going to read verses 22 through 26, and then we're actually going to go and start back from uh, the first of the chapter. Not all today, by the way. Don't panic. Uh, we're going to do this over the next couple of weeks, but I want to show you what Paul, like this is the crescendo that Paul has been driving for. This righteousness, verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. I know Richard Rohr says that God did not, Jesus did not die for your sins, but that's not what the Bible says. I don't know where he got it from, but he did not get it from the Bible. To be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly this morning. Come before you expectant, Lord. Expectant that you would move and and speak to us this morning. That your word would speak to us. That your, your spirit would speak to us. As we open our hearts and our minds, knowing that you, Lord, are here even now and ready to speak in Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is God's brilliant plan to cancel your sin without canceling you. I'm going to say it again. The gospel is God's brilliant plan to be able to cancel your sin without canceling you. Somebody gets it. That's what I love when I'm in Africa and they, the, the Jesus Congo line, the Congo line unfolds in Africa. Do you? I've just been in the Congo line. And they look at you if you don't get in the Congo line like, do you not understand that Jesus rose from the dead? He forgave your sins. How could you not be in the Congo line? I'm like, well, I'm American and we're too cool and sophisticated for Congo lines, but we... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll conga in my heart. I, I conga in my ear. The, the idea of canceling is what is being unfolded here, that Jesus like, was going to cancel your sin, cancel wrath, cancel religion, all that. But it's a modern term that we're hearing a lot is this word cancel. And, and just by you know, a lovely coincidence, perhaps, I don't know, that our good friends at the Atlantic in the cover story this month in the October issue talk about the new Puritans. And their version of the New Puritans, this is a non-Christian author in a, I would say pretty confidently, non-Christian publication. 
making a case that in our modern context, that on the left, uh, progressive, secular, humanist side of society, that what is unfolding is not some brand new, sophisticated ideology. It's actually Puritanism. It is religion without God. Most people that have rejected faith in Christ, what they've really rejected is some version of religion that Christ came to do away with, and then ultimately, you end up replacing it with something. And what she is making an argument for here, by the way, without any uh, understanding of the gospel at all, is that what they've replaced it with is some version of Puritanism that has nothing to do with the quote-unquote liberal ideas that she and her colleagues would ascribe to. But I would suggest to her, if I had the chance to meet with Anne Applebaum, sounds like a child book author, doesn't it? Annie Applebaum. Um, that this is the logical conclusion of life without the gospel. That if you're gonna replace chapter one of Romans, like to live however you want and see that that didn't work out for you, to replace it with chapter two, which is now about, I'm gonna enforce and, and uh, policies and totalitarianism, and if you're not in, I'm gonna condemn you and cancel you. That's the other option, and neither of those will get you to Jesus. Neither of those will give you the life that Christ promised you. And what she talks about here is how many of her colleagues in journalism, how many of her colleagues in creative fields, in television, in writing, in, uh, in the elites of society. Now, interesting, she makes a case at one point, she sort of slides it in there that they're used to canceling Christians for all these years, and that's actually justified. But now that it's aimed on us, we have to do something about it. She says it in a couple of sentences that that's what the underlying tone of it is. But she says that the problem that they have right now is you could be a professor at a university, you could be just accused of something, not even necessarily have done it, but accused of it, and before long, when the, the mob she uses, she references Hester Prynne, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, and how that unfolded in the early centuries, but here it's just happening again at a university level, and to the point now where you've said something where you may or may not have done it wrong, you may have done it wrong, but the point is, is now what do you do? Do you apologize? Because the idea of a scarlet letter of, of uh, not Ayn Rand, wrong author, of Nathaniel Hawthorne, the, of, of Hester Prynne, the scarlet letter for the rest of your life, may no longer be a letter on your chest, but it is going to be a mark on your resume. It's going to be a mark on your ability to earn money. And these professors and these writers and these journalists, which number in the hundreds that have, this has happened to so far, have all been robbed of their ability to exist, to write, to think, and to speak. And here's what she says, that even after you say this out loud, and you, I've, I've, now I'm going to apologize for it, she says, but not everybody even wants an apology. One former journalist told me that his ex-colleagues don't want to endorse the process of mistake, apology, understanding, forgiveness. They don't want to forgive. Instead, he said, they want to punish and purify. But the knowledge that whatever you say will never be enough is debilitating. If you make an apology and you know in advance that your apology will not be accepted, that is going to be considered a move in a psychological or cultural political game. Then the integrity of your introspection is being mocked. You feel permanently marooned in a world of unforgiveness. 
one person told him. And this line is magic right here. And that is truly an unethical world. Even secular humanists have to admit that if we're in a world where we are saved by works, that it will not save us. She might not be using the word salvation in the context of eternity, but she most certainly is using it in the context of what we would say sozo, the Greek, which is to at least live your life on this side of heaven. And if it's by works, it will not succeed. She goes on in her piece to say this. Um, I'll just read this a couple sentences. Was that time that he hugged a colleague in consolation really something else? Was her joke really a joke? Was it something worse? Listen, nobody is perfect, nobody is pure. Once people set out to interpret ambiguous incidents in a particular way, it's hard not to find new evidence. Remember the idea that when you were young, maybe, and maybe you were told, maybe you still believe this, that someday you're gonna stand before God and everything you've ever done right, was going to be now broadcast on a screen for you to see, and now you're going to be judged according to that, right? Has anyone ever heard that or maybe even believed that? That's also Islam, okay? And by the way, it's also now secular humanism. But instead of it being played on a screen in front of you, it's played out on the internet of every tweet you've ever written, every Facebook post you've ever said, every idea that ever got caught on video is now there for the, ju- the world to judge you. Now, why am I bringing all of that up? Because that is the world that we are shifting to in our Western culture, and God help us if it continues. But even if it does, in the kingdom of God, that is not the gospel. The gospel, right? He says, faith through grace, the atoning blood of Christ. Like, that's the gospel. That it's not about my work, but his work that brings me into the kingdom of God. And I want to show you how the gospel doesn't cancel you, but it cancels wrath. And I'll explain in a minute why I mean that. It cancels sin and it cancels religion. We're just gonna start in these first few verses through 19 here, one through 19. We're gonna pick this up next week, but I wanna show you that the gospel itself, how powerful it is, that it could even cancel the wrath of God. Not that God isn't angry. It actually says here in these verses, is God unjust in his wrath? It's verse five, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. Of course he's just. He's the creator of the universe. If I'm harming his creation, i.e. you, or you are harming me, his creation, I've said this before, but look, you, you wanna mess with my kids? I want you to know that's a problem. God's working on a lot of things in my life of redemption, okay? And it turns out it's taken a while. And he hasn't got to turn the other cheek yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, he, there's so much to get to, but you mess with one of my kids, that's a problem because that's a genuine feeling of a father that loves his children. So is God just in being angry if I'm sinning against you or you against me, which is harming you? Of course he's just in that. And the question, of course, is how does he deal with that idea then? 
And it's the brilliance of the gospel, which is that wrath, it's not that he just looks at it with a wink and a nod. There is no boys will be boys in the kingdom of God. No, in fact, he recognizes your sin is so serious that nothing short of the death of the son of God would pay for it. That's pretty serious. And that he loves you so much, by the way, that he did it willingly. How amazing is the gospel that the wrath that should have been poured out on you or on me, that Christ steps in, God in Christ, and takes it himself. When you hear the language of Jesus talking about a cup of, who can drink from this cup, right? Can you drink of this cup that I'm going to drink from? In the garden, God, if there's any way that this cup could be passed from me. The Old Testament is littered with language of wrath in a cup. He's speaking specifically of the wrath of God that would be poured out on him for every sin I've ever committed, for every sin I am committing, for every sin I will commit. That wrath was poured out on Christ so that God could be perfectly just as well as perfectly loving to us. And the canceling of that wrath is something that secular humanism has no place for. Applebaum goes on in her piece saying, speaking of those who have been canceled, all of them saints, sinners, have been handed drastic, life-altering, indefinite punishments, often without the ability to make a case in their own favor. This, the convicting and sentencing without due process or mercy, now listen to this very carefully as an American, should profoundly bother Americans. In 1789, James Madison proposed that the U.S. Constitution ensure that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, property without the due process of law. Both the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments, this is all, by the way, from the Atlantic, not exactly a bastion of conservative think, okay? Both the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution invoke due process. Nevertheless, these Americans have effectively been deprived of it. If you reject God as your judge, somebody's gonna be your judge. I can say I don't want God to be my judge, but there's still a judge out there. And God help you if it is the culture that becomes your judge. Because that judge is arbitrary and capricious. Those rules are slipperier than snot on a doorknob. You can't get a hold of them. You can't get a grip because it constantly changes. And I would say this. We're looking for due process in our country. And even in our country, if you've ever been involved in the legal system, you know that it is not perfect. But the due process of the kingdom of God is the throne of God and the cross of Christ. That is the due process that we are granted there. And that due process is perfect. That due process sees perfectly and handles it perfectly. And please give me that all day long for that wrath to not be wiped away, but to be absorbed so that God can still see me in Christ because he is the one that absorbed that punishment. And not only then did he, he absorb and he, he canceled the wrath on me, poured it onto Christ, but he also cancels. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come because I want to show you some more elements of it. But I want to show you one element of how he canceled the power of sin under the gospel. In the next verses there, in verses 
9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin. Now, if you think for a second about what he is saying there, Paul, the most religious Pharisee man, right, maybe in history at this point, saying that these guys of Romans 1, that I would have, can- I would have canceled all of them. I mean, literally, if you go through Romans 1 and then you cross-reference that with Paul's life and what he was judging for, not a single one of them make it out of that alive, okay? And what does Paul say here? Am I any different than them? Listen, am I any different than them? The religious Paul, the Pharisee, that would have said, of course I'm better than them. I'm a Jew. Gentiles were dogs. I'm better. But no, he says, the answer to that question, am I any better than them? The answer is no. I am on a level playing field in front of the cross. All of us are. See, there's this doctrine called total depravity. And I understand that it really offends some Western sensibilities. Okay? And, and the idea is that if, if we believe in total depravity, then that means that some people are lowered and, we, and we're going to look down on people because of depravity. But think with me. Paul, just the guy that hated all Gentiles, is now saying to these Gentiles, I'm no different than you are. I'm on the same playing field as you are. The doctrine of total depravity, which says we are all sinners, that we were all born into sin, does not create a hierarchy, it creates a leveling. It actually rehumanizes the humans around us. Because now I know that, I mean, look, the Jews here are saying, look, we got the circumcision thing, okay? That's a big ask, God, okay? And we did it. That means we should get a pass maybe on some of the other stuff. I'm crushing this one, so I am gonna be able to judge and look down on these other people. In a modern vernacular, a modern context, it might be, but God, I go to church every Sunday. I'm getting that one right. I have a right now to really look down on and judge those around me. And Paul's saying, none of that counts in front of the cross of Christ. We are all on a level playing field so that I can look to those who are my friends as well as my enemies and say, we are all under the same call of Christ to come and to repent and to receive and to believe. It does not dehumanize, it rehumanizes everyone around us. This is an important doctrine that we must not throw out just because it offends us in the West. That Christ would come for us, for all of us, that I'm no different than the the sinners around me, I'm a sinner too that's saved by grace. There's two kinds of people in this world, those who are saved and those who God wants to save, and that's it. And I want to be a part of seeing all those that he wants to save to become a part of that. Now back to this piece in the Atlantic. One of the major cultural institutions, one of the presidents said that Twitter is the new public sphere. Yet Twitter is unforgiving, it's relentless. It doesn't check facts or provide context. Worse, like the elders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony who would not forgive Hester Prynne, the internet keeps track of past deeds, ensuring that no error, no mistake, no misspoken sentence or clumsy metaphor is ever lost. 
It's not that everybody's famous for 15 minutes. Listen to this. It's that everybody gets damned for 15 seconds. Do you hear what he's saying? One 15-second tweet could burn your life down. One moment of you saying something incredibly stupid, irappropriate, irappropriate, sorry. My five-year-old daughter used to get really excited about big words, and so she would say words that were really close, uh, but not quite the right word, but we still know what she meant. And to this day, instead of inappropriate, we say irappropriate around my house. So, Lauren, I know you're not watching, but if you were watching, you're, thank you for that. But you know, things that have been inappropriate in my life, I promise you, if you go back to when I was 15 years old, you could find some incredibly dumb and embarrassing and sinful things that if you wanted to parade them right out here, would absolutely humiliate and potentially ruin my life. And I say that knowing that everyone in this room is the same. Now, the kingdom of religion of Romans 2 says, crucify him, right? The, the, the Romans 1 says, hey, whatever you want to do, do it all. But it always comes back to somebody's going to judge. And it's either going to be a mob on Twitter. They don't have pitchforks and torches anymore. We got keyboards and we got screens now. And they will circle the wagons to try to burn it down. And by the way, that kind of language that every tweet, everything, again, goes back to the way that we were taught that the way that salvation works, that one day I'm going to be judged for all of those works. And all this is is a very demonic, secular version of the same lie of that religion. And we get to reject it because it is through grace that we are saved, right? The redemption, the blood, the atoning blood of Christ that we are saved. I wanna say one more thing on that. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll say it's second service. As you begin to read through these verses here in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you see things like their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know, there is no fear of God in their eyes. You can cross-reference the rise of any totalitarian dictator in history and use this as the roadmap to how their lives went unhinged and how millions of people would end up dying because somebody decided to not use the gospel but to use this idea, and this is what I wanted to read to you, this C.S. Lewis, you, you know he wasn't a prophet, right? He was a historian. When you read sentences like this, it wasn't like, oh, how did he know this was gonna happen? This has already happened because humans are humans throughout history. But he says this, that of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under the omnipotent or moral <laughs> busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. That is true in government, and it is true in church. That is true in the public square, and that is true in your own homes that if we're trying to torment each other out of the idea that I'm a busybody trying to make you do what I think is good, that is 
Romans 1 and 2, and it ends in disaster. And if it is allowed to go unfettered in a country, it ends in disaster every single time without fail. And if I might add, I'm praying that in our country that the Jesus people that are arising in the corners of government and in public policy, that we're not arising with some sort of a new religion to try to shove it down people's throat, but that we are arising with the gospel of grace in the public square to bring hope and light even in influencing those policies because the policies of God are true in every situation or they're not true in any situation. But God in this, the gospel here is saying, I have canceled the power of sin and the power of sin is this, that if I think that I'm doing better than you, then I can now lord over you and judge you for the ways that you are screwing up and the ways that I am not. That's a power of sin. And by leveling the playing field in front of the cross, I don't get to say, Okay, because I've got this sin, uh, but nobody knows about this one. I can still drop the hammer on you for this sin, where I've now categorized the sin. Do you, this, you know how we do this in churches and stuff? Let's forget all of that and go back to the gospel. Let's not misplace the grace that connects us to the Father to begin with, because it's through grace that you're fa- saved. And I love it, because even in these first few verses, Paul's actually talking about the same stuff we're talking about, when he's saying, well, what if, what, what if this happens? Won't people just sin anyway? Won't they just sin more if it's all about the gospel, if there's no hammer to drop, if there's no punishment to hammer them with? Isn't that, there's no deterrent. That's what he's saying. And he says, oh, no, no, that's a terrible way to go. He's, the gospel is enough. Fear and shame and control will never change behavior from the outside in. It's only from the inside out of transformation and that is through faith, hope, and love through the gospel. And the last thing that the gospel cancels is religion. And I use the word religion. I know there's different ideas when you say religion. The the version I'm gonna use is the one, in fact, the etymology of it, whatever it means to bind up. And, And religion, when I say it, is I'm meaning religion is me working to get to God, not God worked to get to me. Religion is I am seeking God as if he was somehow lost. Christianity is God seeking me because he knows right where I am. So when I say religion, that's what I mean. And the gospel cancels it in this very specific way. Verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. As we started with, I said there's two ways that people basically try to get their own salvation. One is make my own laws, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do, live my own way. The other one is and probably more common in this community is I'm going to be so good, I'm gonna work so hard, I'm gonna do so many good deeds, feed so many children that God owes me a good life. Both of those still put me in control. You see, the thing about sin is sin is directional before It's behavioral. Here's what I mean by that. Look at the language there in verses uh, 11 and 12. He says, uh, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks 
God, I'm, it's a direction. I'm, no one seeks God. And then in verse 11, uh, verse 12, all have turned away, like all have turned away, all, all no, seek God. Those are directional phrases. And the idea of that is that sin before it ever becomes behavioral is actually me changing a direction away from God into myself as opposed to out of myself and into God. And from that, behaviors are born. It's a turning in on myself and away from outside of myself and into God. Sin starts there. And so when he says, no one seeks God, you might say, well, I saw God. I'm seeking God. Ask yourself honestly, is it God that you're seeking or is it what he can do for you that you're seeking? You see, <laughs> it doesn't say that no one seeks the blessings of God. The text doesn't say that because that's not true. All of us do. The text doesn't say no one seeks uh, healing from God or, or prosperity from God or meaning from, no, it doesn't say any of that because it's not true, we do every day. What he's saying is that no one seeks God purely. In, I'm gonna use one example. This is one I heard from some pastor and so I wish I could remember, I'd totally give him credit. But in the, the addiction community, and Cassie is here somewhere, one of the things that happens, and by the way, this is your own story this morning. I, this is, I'm not meaning any aspersion or judgment or whatever, but what happens often in an addiction in a marriage relationship is this, that the person who is addicted now has a spouse, okay? Let's say it's the wife that's addicted and the husband is doing everything he can to help and to love and to carry and to nurture and ultimately to enable and to, it ultimately turns into what uh, psychologists would call codependency which means ultimately I'm not as much, and Todd, you could correct me if I'm wrong, I'm probably oversimplifying this, and this is not across the board, but it's not so much that I want you uh, to change as much as I just want my life to be happy, so I'll do whatever I can to keep things happy and calm around here uh, and to keep you where you need to be so that we're happy and calm here. And what happens in a weird way in many addiction situations that after the person receives help, and gets clean, divorce happens sometimes in these situations. And what happened was that spouse suddenly had an identity that was not about necessarily helping their spouse, but is more about helping them. And now that the addiction is no longer in the spouse, the marriage doesn't work anymore because I don't have anything to do because it was filling this need in me. Okay, that is an oversimplification and it may not fit in your world at all. But is an example of how I might seek God in a way that is not about a relationship with him, but about what I can get out of him. And him in my life to get what he can give to me so that once I get it, then I walk away from him because now I got everything I wanted and except for what I really wanted was him. Sin turns in on yourself. And addiction is just one of the ways in which that happens in our life. We all have methods of where that falls in it. But listen, here's what, here's what I want you to hear. And boy, we gotta get out. I just wanna say this as carefully as I can. Because he says this now. He goes on to say, uh, verse 20, uh, so that every mouth may be silenced, okay? That verse right there, for a nice 19 or so. So that every mouth might be silenced. 
which kind of was a little bit interesting to me. Because what is cancel culture to begin with? Shutting you up, right? Shutting me up so that I can no longer speak freely, causing me to not be able to spend money anymore, not to be able to find work anymore, silencing you. And so in a weird way, this is actually what, when God says he is going to cancel religion, what he is saying is he's gonna shut me up. (laughs) When I do the whole thing where, okay, God, I'm gonna try this time a whole lot harder. This time, okay, I blew it yesterday, but starting right now, okay, well, tomorrow, so tomorrow we're going to, okay, Tuesday, we're going to really rock this thing, and now I'm going to be finally right with God, and God is saying, shh, that's religion. I'm going to pray harder this time. If I I pray harder, then I can get the miracle, shh, so that every mouth would be silenced because that's religion and him canceling religion is a gift to you to be able to come to him not with anything that you have done good anything you have done bad but only to come to him with specifically and simply and only my need and that's where the grace of God comes into my life Tim Keller like he often does says it better than I could when he says this, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done. Or maybe, look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him to just, and it's supposed to be watch, but to just watch, to receive Pride wants me to bring whatever I can so that now he owes me something. Pride allows me to bring all these good works and all these kids we've, you know, fed and hating, all that stuff. And God's saying, great, I just wanted a relationship with you. I just came to seek and save you. And out of that, we'll feed the hungry. We'll clothe the naked. Out of that, we'll be passionate lovers of Jesus this side of heaven. But you won't go down there trying to fill some hole in your heart that was left by your father that only God can fill. Once again, trying to get God to do something for you because I worked so hard. What if God's just saying to you this morning, shh, my grace is sufficient for you. Just receive, just believe. I'd gotten home from that flight from Paris and I was jet lagged out of my ever loving mind. And I woke up at some point in, in the night or morning, I don't even remember, and I, and I received an email from a guy named Mark in Paris. Now, by the way, I had impugned an entire population of the French. Because every, I mean, have you ever been to the France? They're not the kindest people. Do you know, like the culture, every country has a rhythm and theirs is like uh, crunchy. Like, like I'm just asking for directions to the Eiffel Tower and this guy's like, hey, you go down to this hotel and you do it. And then you just ask them because you need to learn French. Like, I just want to know how to get to the Eiffel Tower. They weren't very kind to me. But Mark, the French guy, finds my phone and literally... Sees, you know, on your phone when it's off, you can still see notifications, and he sees Twitter notifications. He literally sets up a Twitter account. He'd never been on Twitter. Puts a picture of my iPhone, which 
hilariously enough, had a picture of Audrey on it because she had made a, <laughs> they had made a screenshot. I didn't know how to change screenshots of like the homepage. And so I had a picture of Audrey and a couple of missionaries as my homepage and I couldn't figure out how to change it because I'm an old man. <laughs> and then he email, emails me in French and says, hey, I've got your iPhone. And so 36 hours later, 40 hours later, Audrey and Ryan Ray and a couple others were headed back on the same layover back from uh, Lome, Togo, Africa. And, uh, and picked up my iPhone at a McDonald's in Paris, France. And he said, I knew it was you because I saw your face on the home screen because <laughs> he could see them. Listen to me. There was nothing I could do to get that iPhone. I didn't know who he was. I had no way to reach him. The location services were turned off because it was on international. There was no way that I could get the connection that I needed except this guy went to a bunch of trouble to get to a McDonald's to find us to get this phone back. And the very reason that I even have this photo is because of Mark. Jesus went way further than McDonald's to give you the connection to the Father. Jesus went way further than creating a Twitter account. Jesus did the thing that we could not do. He came to us. He sought us because we could not seek him. And if you walk out of here with anything else today, please walk out with the idea the concept hopefully driving into your heart that your good works and your bad works, neither one are going to get you saved. Neither one are gonna get you any closer to the Father, but your need of salvation, your need and just bringing it and then receiving the gift of connection, the gift of eternal life, faith. And we're gonna talk about that next week as we continue in Romans three. But that it is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works lest any person, any man should boast. I stand before you today without any ability to boast. It was Jesus who came, who sought, who saved me. And all I have to do is to receive. And as you leave today, watch your language this week. Not if you're cussing, you can keep doing that for all I care. But, but if you, I mean, look, I'm in Tennessee, y'all do what you do. But, but watch your language. If I say this sentence, oh, I'm gonna pray really hard this week. Give yourself some grace on that. I've misplaced the grace. I'm gonna fast for three days so that my kid could get into the university. You've misplaced the grace. If you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm gonna fast today because I wanna be closer to my father. I wanna connect with him. You're getting real warm on what the gospel did because the gospel has canceled wrath on you who are in Christ. The gospel has canceled the sin and the power that that sin has over you and the gospel has canceled the religion over you. It is for freedom that he sets you free. Let's step into that freedom, especially in this climate. We're surrounded in a world and I promise you if there's a revival coming, it's gonna, one of the things it's gonna come from is these people who are writing about this right now know that this little system that they've just cooked up, the bills are coming due and there's no money in the account. The gospel, the truth. Marshall, that's what you're talking about. The revival is being born in this country. I believe it's gonna be born out of truth from sea to shining sea, 
from coast to coast and around the world. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give ourselves to you this morning, prayerfully offering to you just our need, just nothing but us and our need, and receiving the salvation that you've brought to us. Please, Lord, we just want to more and more just shake off the religion, shake off the wrath and the sin, and just stand as children of God, not beggars standing outside trying to get in. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful. It's in your name, Christ Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week, and we will see you next Sunday, not before.